I would imagine that all of us would agree with the fact that humility is that one attribute in life that whenever you think you have it, you've automatically lost it. Right? Well, let me test that theory. On the count of three, everyone in here who believes he is humble, raise your hand. One, <laughs> two, three. All right, it's unanimous. Well, if you lose it, whenever you think you've got it, how do you know if you have it? Uh, the founding president of the Navigators organization used to, I read, constantly emphasize to his staff that they ought to have a servant's attitude of humility. A servant's attitude of humility. And on one occasion, a businessman asked Dawson Trotman, how can you know when you have a servant's attitude? And he responded by how you act when you're treated like one. How do you know if you're developing the attribute of humility? I came across this some time ago. H.A. Ironside. Ironside pastored the Moody Church in Chicago in the early 1900s. And as a younger man, he wasn't developing this attribute of humility like he wanted. He really wanted to grow in this area. And so he asked a, a Christian, uh, an older statesman mentor, what he ought to do about it. And this mentor, unfortunately, gave him somewhat shallow advice that would, that would boomerang back around. But uh, the mentor told him that the way to develop humility was to do something really humbling. Like, wear a sandwich board with a plan of salvation written on the front and the back. Put it on and go into the, the shopping district of Chicago during, you know, busy hours and walk through it for the entire day. Which he did in the late 1800s. He followed his advice. When he arrived back home to his little apartment after a humbling day of uh, ridicule and laughter and, and even obscenities, he was exhausted. But as he took off uh, the sandwich board, he found himself thinking, you know, there's probably nobody else in Chicago that would do that. <laughs> so the very exercise only developed more pride. Andrew Murray, who wrote a couple of centuries ago, touched on the solution when he wrote this. The humble person is not necessarily one who does humble things. He is not someone who thinks poorly of himself. A humble person is someone who really does not think of himself at all. I want to take you to a moment recorded by the Gospel of Luke just after the disciples have returned from their first tour of preaching and miraculous healing. I'm not going to tell you where it is because I just want you to listen to this introduction, okay? They demonstrated apostolic power, miraculous power, which of course authenticated their message. It's a whirlwind of activity. Amazing things are happening. People are being healed. They have the rapt attention of audiences wherever they go. They naturally began to struggle with feelings of pride. I mean, are we successful or what? Look at the miracles that are occurring through our hands. On one occasion, in fact, after their second tour, just a little later than the scene we're going to look at in our session today... Jesus effectively responds to them, look, if you want to be excited about something really amazing, don't be so excited about, you know, those amazing miracles that you did. Be excited about the fact 
fact that your names are written in the book of heaven. Get excited about that. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. So pride is sort of knocking on the door. In fact, in all of our lives, it knocks on the door whenever we're more excited about what God does through us than what God has done for us. Because the focus shifts from God's glory to our accomplishments. One author warned about this with a little humor when they put it this way. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that young donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that praise was for him? Well, the disciples are about to be taught, among other things, a valuable lesson in humility. The only miracle recorded, apart from the resurrection of Christ, in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 15,000. We all think about the feeding of the 5,000, which is how it's outlined by the editing team of my English translation. But as we'll see, it's 5,000 men, trainloads of women and children along as well. It's more like the feeding of the 15,000, and people have still not gotten over it. Let me, let me set the context for you as you turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. At this point, the disciples are absolutely worn out. They're tired. The press of the people and the demands of their ministry have taken a toll. In fact, Mark's gospel informs us that at this point, Jesus says, Look, men, I want to take you away to a quiet, secluded place of rest. Mark chapter 6, verse 31. So Jesus suggests that they paddle around you know, the edge of, uh, of, of the lake there, and they find this quiet wilderness place about eight miles away and get some rest. But the crowd literally runs around on the shore and chases them down. Maybe you can identify with those disciples at that moment. <laughs> Excited? Oh, no, far from it. They suggest the Lord sends them on their way. Maybe you've discovered the pressing need that comes out of life and ministry. Man, I look at that organizational chart of the women's ministries and, wow, that's tiring. There are a lot of people involved in that ministry. For every one of you who volunteers, a Bible study leader, men, women, young people, you volunteer in the nursery, you're involved in something, teaching, leading, preparing, you're fixing something, you're preaching or counseling or teaching Sooner or later, you discover the truth, as uh, Chuck Swindoll put it, and I like it the way he puts it. He said, you discover that the burden of your ministry never sleeps. Never sleeps. Your desire for a quiet, secluded place where phones never ring (laughs) never does become a reality, even in church. In your personal lives, in and through the life of the church, there's always more to do, isn't there? There's always something to do. 
One of our former secretaries has just had a baby and is now home. Caring for that baby came in this past week, and I saw her in the lobby as she'd come to show that baby to the the other gals in her department. And I said, how you doing, Stephanie? And she said, I'm working on two hours of sleep. Just the days. You could just see it in her eyes. Let me take you away to a quiet place where you can get a little rest. And maybe in that, Jesus was teaching them a lesson as well. You never do quite get all that time. That you like. In fact, Kent Hughes, a pastor for many years, commented on this text by quoting this little funny but true poem that goes like this. Mary had a little lamb, t'was given her to keep. But then it joined the local church and died for lack of sleep. (laughs) So right off the bat, one of the lessons that they're going to be learning is the inconvenience of serving Christ. But the greater issue that the Lord is going to teach them is their inadequacy in serving Christ. Now if you combine the four gospel accounts you'll discover that this takes place around 4 p.m. on a mid-April afternoon. This is when the event transpired. And Jesus asks the disciples a question. And I'm going to dip into the Gospel by John to pull that question into the context here in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Jesus asks the question, where can we go to buy food to feed all these people? Where can we go to buy food to feed the crowd? They want the crowd to go away. Jesus says, no, where can we, where can we get bread to feed them? And, and John also tells us that he asked that question to test them. Test them. It's a pop quiz. Test them how? Was he testing their level of faith in his ability? Well, if so, they failed the test because they will never ever even think about the fact that Jesus would perform a miracle on such a grand scale. So they blew that one if that was the test. Was he testing their management skills in handling 15,000 people? Is he, getting ready, uh, is he getting them ready for the church in Jerusalem, which will be about 15,000 not too long after its inception? Well, Philip evidently thought that this was the test. Because John's gospel informs us that Jesus actually specifically asked Philip, where can we go buy bread? Why Philip? Because this was Philip's hometown. Philip knew where the bakery was. Philip knew where the markets were. Philip knew the price of bread in this region. And I love this. Philip thinks the Lord is is a serious because he gets out his pencil and his calculator and he starts figuring away and he's, he, he's getting the cost of this meal figured out and he says, okay, Lord, eventually I got it. 15,000 people times the cost of a loaf of bread divided by 10 little bites per person per loaf will cost us 200 denarii. John chapter 6, verse 7. But then he adds the words, but only if everybody takes a little. That's going to happen around the time that Jesus commands them, as he does here in verse 13. You give them something to eat. You feed them. They're trying to figure it all out. John says, I'll tell you what, I know it would cost this much money 
And if we could come up with that much money, everybody could get something, but it'd only be a bite each. This past week, when I was in Dunbar, Wisconsin, uh, several guys who were interested in the seminary um, and ministry wanted to take me out to dinner on Friday night. What that means is I'm paying, okay? (laughs) We're going to go out, and the only restaurant within miles of this little Bible college was a little hole in the wall called Mary's Place. But they said there are great hamburgers there, and so we went, and and the three or four guys and myself and, and got there and on the front door of that little, little white wood shack kind of place was a sign that said, no credit cards or checks allowed, cash only. I only carry a debit card and a credit card. I never carry cash. I don't know what cash looks like. You with me on that? I have no idea what that looks like. I... So we stood outside trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> They're kind of looking at me, and I'm looking at them. And then one of the students said, well, I got a little cash. And uh, it wasn't much, but we, we figured, let's go ahead and let's, let's, let's go for it. So we went in, sat down, and looked at the menu. And the waitress came and said, what do you want to drink? And we said, water. <laughs> in fact, do you charge for lemons? If not, give us a lot of those. So we, we got water, lemons, and... And then uh, figured out that we could, we could each get a hamburger and split the fries. It was, by the way, an outstanding hamburger. I got two French fries to eat with it. <laughs> no, I got more than that. But when the bill came, the, the well, one college kid got so excited. He says, man, I got enough left over. You know, we can maybe get a milkshake. So we split two milkshakes. <laughs> it's like the water jug on the bench during soccer games, you know. But anyhow, we got a little ice cream and a little leftover for a decent tip. Kind of reminded me of the old days. Maybe you're there right now. You count the change. You look in the car underneath the seat to see if there's any there. And uh, this is exactly where these disciples are. They don't have any money. Jesus says, commands here in verse 13, you feed them and they're thinking, oh, well, how do we do that? Never for once in their minds are they thinking that, well, maybe Jesus can pull this off. They're thinking... All right, now how much money is he going to take? And Philip figures it all out. It's going to take 200 denarii. And he knows the baker, by the way, and he only accepts cash. You need to understand that 200 denarii in the days of Christ was about a year's salary for the working class. So to compare that salary to our minimum wage context today... It would have taken the disciples around $13,000 to buy one dinner and they would all only get a bite. And they'd still have to share. But his intention, I think, is fascinating here. When Jesus tells them in verse 13, he got all, this, all these people, they, they've chased them down. Jesus has been teaching them on the kingdom and then he says to his disciples, all right, now you take care of their meal. They're left with this thought. And I think the implication of what Jesus is saying is pretty clear to them. Look, you guys, I mean, you, you have your miracle stories. You've come back with your, you know, your success stories. You, have, you guys have power over, over demons. You've been talking about it ever since you got back. You, one successful ministry event after another. You're all caught up in the amazing things that you have done. All right, so you emphasis, feed them. And I think they're stunned. 
And they're stumbling all over themselves. How in the world are we ever going to pull this off? So immediately after verse 13, they're, they're overwhelmed. In fact, they are so focused on this huge, hungry crowd that they completely overlook Jesus. They don't even think about his provision in the face of their poverty. See, Jesus is going to teach them a lesson in humility, which is the foundation for spirit-empowered ministry. He's going to teach them that they have nothing to offer people apart from him. Because without him, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. He's going to teach them that their hands are useless unless his hands are involved. That they have no power apart from his provision. He's also going to teach them and us that our poverty is the perfect context for his provision. Because in that we learn it best, that that we are nothing more than conduits of the grace of God. And you never look in the mirror and say, was I something or what? Alexander McLaren, the Scottish pastor and author two centuries ago wrote, I love this. He said, it is often our God-given duty to attempt something of which we are totally inadequate in the understanding that God has laid that task on us to drive us to himself and there to find sufficiency. Now the glory and grace of the Lord to me is remarkable because he's going to use what little they have to surrender to him in this co-laboring principle of poverty and provision. So the disciples, as you know, they scrounge around and they find this little boy's lunch. It's the most famous brown bag in history, isn't it? Look at verse 13, Luke 9. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Now, again, with other gospel accounts, I'll fill the gap in for you. It was actually Andrew, the disciple, who found the boy's lunch. He hands it to the Lord, and another gospel writer informs us that, that as he handed it to the Lord, he apologized. And he said in John chapter 6, but, but what is this among so many? In other words, silly me, what was I thinking? And all the other disciples are going, Andrew, what in the world are you thinking of the kid his lunch back? What is this among so many? What little do I have that can equate to the magnitude of the need. The key was it's now in the master's hands. Two fish, five barley loaves. Barley bread was the bread of the common masses, coarse, rough, inferior in its texture and taste to wheat bread. Barley was most often fed to livestock. So this clues us in on the poverty level of this young boy. 
It would have been five small, flat, basically round, palm-sized pieces of barley bread and two fish. Thanks to Matthew, I believe it is, who tells us that these fish, he uses the Greek word absaria, which was a small fish the size of a minnow or a sardine. They dried these fish and they salted them down and they added spices and relish. They, they literally pickled these fish for flavor. So what you've got is you've got this little boy, this young boy, He's got his lunch of, of the common masses, those who are poor. He has his lunch of pickled fish to help his dry barley bread go down. Notice verse 14. And Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. Now why seat them? Why sit them down? Well, for starters, once people saw what Jesus was doing, they might have rushed forward to get some food, perhaps crushing each other in the process. We are talking about 15 to maybe 20,000 people. But I think it's more than that. I think sitting them down allowed them all to see what Jesus was doing. And they'll get it, by the way. In fact, another gospel account tells us that after this miracle, they will try to crown him king. Why? They saw what he did. In fact, the rabbis of Jesus' day were teaching that when the Messiah came, he would reproduce the miracle of the manna in the wilderness. He would deliver manna feeding the people. Manna from heaven. Jesus is effectively fulfilling that teaching, feeding the people in the wilderness with bread. And and by the way, it's not a coincidence that the very next thing he will preach on is that he himself is the bread of life. He not only delivers manna from heaven, he is the eternal manna from heaven. Deeply significant. That's why they wanted to crown him. Look at verse 16. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He more than likely prayed the traditional blessing preserved in the Mishnah, had been under the pen and efforts of scribes for more than 100 years before Christ was born. The ancient record of Jewish practices, the prayer would have gone. Something like this, blessed be you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who causes bread to come forth on the earth. And at that moment, you would have heard the response of 15,000 plus people saying, Amen. Now notice, after blessing it, Jesus kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. So Jesus is standing there alternating between bread and and fish as he he breaks them apart. And, And Luke's gospel uses the imperfect tense here to say that the miracle 
occurred in his hands. He kept on breaking them. He just kept on breaking and giving it to the disciples. Perhaps they eventually started using their outer tunics to you know, hold all the bread and the, and the fish, and they walked down each row, and people could reach out and take some of it, and then they'd run back to the Lord, and he'd load them down again. And they kept on doing that until they had fed all 15,000, 20,000 people. And Jesus is just up there, just breaking away this bread and fish. And in fact, he kept on until he knew they would have 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple, and then he stopped. As you might expect, those who denied the miraculous power of, of Christ try to explain this miracle away, it really gives them heartburn, and I'm so glad it does. They, they suggest that Jesus is passing out communion. You know, since he blessed it and broke it, that language is familiar, obviously a forecast of, you know, the coming ordinance. So everybody only got a crumb, kind of like my French fry. Took a long time to eat it because that's all I'd get. Just a microscopic taste of fish. Well, we have some problems. Never mind the fact that we're missing fresh wine for them to drink, which represents his blood. But John's gospel especially shreds the liberal viewpoint by telling us that the people got as much bread and fish as they wanted. One little crumb, it was everything they wanted. In fact, both Matthew and Luke's gospels tell us that they were all satisfied You'll note that word in your text here in Luke's gospel, verse 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. The word satisfied is from cortazo, which means filled up. In fact, it's the normal Greek word used to describe the fattening of animals who gorged themselves until they could eat no more. (laughs) That's what you do at Golden Corral. Right? You gorge like an animal. That's why they appropriately call it Golden Corral. (laughs) These people are literally stuffed. You could translate it that way. They're stuffed with bread and pickled fish. So that viewpoint falls if you just look at the text. Another unbelieving viewpoint, I'll just give you two and we'll be done with this, but suggests that what really happened was that the people were so embarrassed by this little boy offering his lunch that they all took out their lunches that they'd been hiding and they, they shared them with each other. That's sweet. <laughs> Again, Luke records, in fact, look carefully, he records in verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied and, note this, the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up 12 Baskets full. The baskets of leftovers were the broken pieces from the hands of Jesus Christ. One basket for each disciple, which would allow them to eat once they'd finished serving everybody else. And they no doubt learned unforgettable lessons on availability and trust and certainly humility as they ate this leftover bread fish. Back to the miracle. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus Christ is standing there. He's breaking this. What's he doing? He's literally creating bread. 
He's leaping over the process of sowing and weeding and watering and reaping and winnowing and crushing and mixing and baking. None of that, just bread. Bread. He's creating real fish. Not tuna that tastes like salmon. I mean, it's the real thing, right? And the implication is that he's even creating the spices and the relish that pickled them. What you have here is the Lord of creation. This is a demonstration of what Paul will write about a little later on in Colossians chapter 1. That for by him, that is by his hands, he created all things. This is nothing for him. This is the creator God bringing basket load after basket load of pickled fish and bread into existence. And they got it. And no wonder after he did it, they all wanted to rush him and force him to be crowned king. It's not time for that now. This is a prelude, though. His divine power to create and provide in the coming kingdom. And certainly throughout eternity. But in the meantime, here's the punchline to the lesson. The disciples always found his hands were full whenever they came back to him with hands that were empty. That exercise develops humility. Recognizing that our hands are so easily and so quickly emptied. But that his hands are always full. And he fills our hands. And we give it away. And we come back to him and he fills our hands. And we give it away. Trusting him that somewhere in there, there will be a little bit for us to eat as well along the way. That's why Paul gets to the end of his life and he says, if I'm going to brag about anything, it's going to be the cross work of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter comes to the end of his life. He doesn't list in his letters all the stuff he did. You know, I was the apostle that walked on water and I preached the opening sermon for the church age. I did a lot of miraculous things. No, instead he writes this to believers in his old age. All of you, he writes, clothe yourselves with humility. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The lesson to learn which develops humility along the way is to serve him with empty yet upturned hands. To keep coming to him. Ready to receive what only he can do. Whatever he creates from his overabounding, never-ending supply. And when it's all said and done, and along the way as well, he then receives all of the credit and all of the glory and all of the praise. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for the reminder of your glory and your power and your grace and your kindness and your patience. We, as we study this and really just skim over, can't imagine 
what must have been going through your mind, Lord, as you stood there and watched the disciples try to figure things out. As you waited on Philip to calculate everything out. As you observed the panic, the frustration, the overwhelming concern of a task demanded by you. And we're reminded that you do that with us. You've actually asked us to go and reach the world. You've asked us to multiply our lives into the lives of others. You've asked us to deliver the gospel to the nations. You've asked us to serve you, to teach and to counsel and to lead and to guide and to pray and to do all sorts of things. Help us not to overlook you. Your provision overcomes our poverty. Your sufficiency takes care of our inadequacy. And if all we can say at the end of a day is we we had you, that would be enough. Thank you.